Hello, fellow writers! You have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, a.k.a. Lewis, a.k.a. Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. And it's time for another classic! Classics persist in popular culture for a reason, so I think it can be great to look at some of the techniques they used, why they worked, and whether or not they still do to learn how to better write now. That being said, spoilers ahead because you've had plenty of time to read this book. It's been out since 1954, and that book is Lord of the Flies by William Golding. I've been mentioning this for a while on the podcast, how much I love this classic. It's all about human nature and whether or not morality is learned or inherent and what that means for society and the breakdown thereof. Lord of the Flies, the title of which is a reference to the inevitability of death and decay, is a story about a bunch of school-age boys whose plane is shot down during a war, leaving them stranded without any adults on a deserted island. Our main character is Ralph, who is quickly voted leader because he finds a conch shell to call all the others together. We also have Piggy, a fat kid with glasses who is mocked and disliked, but needed because his glasses are necessary to create fire. There's Jack, who was popular in school, leader of the choir boys, and now feels entitled to lead. He also becomes obsessed with hunting and killing the pigs on the island for food. There's Simon, a sort of strange boy who remains kind and true to himself throughout, unlike all the others. And there are other characters too, like Sam and Eric, twins who are such a package deal they go by one name, and Roger, who goes quite masochistic by the end. But those are our main four characters. Ralph, Piggy, Jack, and Simon. The cool thing about these characters is that they each represent a different side of society. Simon is the true moral good in man, the kind that cannot be corrupted, the kind that is rare. Ralph is the moral good that comes about with the necessity of society. Given enough pressure, he will sway with the majority, but his priority is keeping up as much semblance of civility as possible rather than good for goodness' sake. Piggy is the logical mind of society, the rational one who understands that monsters don't exist, and the one who desires rules to prop up fairness and keep them all safe. And then we have Jack, the leader of the majority, the part of mankind that goes savage and primal in the face of fear and no rules and no consequences. Everyone else on the island, while they may be small metaphors, are mostly just the types who will sway with the mob. They are easily led, and they don't put up much resistance except to showcase how the tides of the island are turning. The most interesting thing about this metaphor between the four boys is that of all the boys on the island, Simon and Piggy are the only two to be killed while stranded. A few other kids die, but not by name and not, quote, on screen, so to speak. But Simon is killed trying to warn the others that they are actually safe, that there is no monster except maybe each other, that they are simply misinterpreting their fears of the island. And he's beaten to death by the other boys caught in a primal, uncontrollable dance. Piggy is killed, attempting to bring reason back to the island society. And so their deaths show how true morality and logical thinking, those who try to uphold them and value them, are the first to go in the face of the breakdown of society. They are the two that cannot survive in such a world. They can't adapt. Jack and Ralph, on the other hand, show that the savagery in the heart of man and the desire for society and community coexist in us at first, like Jack and Ralph initially become friends, but then descend inevitably into outright competing enemies, as we can see when Jack hunts Ralph down. So what can we as writers learn from this? 
When we talk about theme and meaning in our writing, using our characters to represent different worldviews can be a great way to showcase discussion and debate without preaching at the reader. Jack and Ralph's arguments never feel forced. They're relevant. When they fight about whether or not the signal fire or the hunt for food is more important, we can see the true conflict between the two. And yet, Golding is also using this to make a higher point about conflicting desires between not only members in society, but also the pieces within each of us. So if there's a specific purpose behind your writing, if you're making a political point or religious point, if you have a message to communicate that's new or often strawmanned or simply important to you, cultivating characters that are metaphors can be a great way to do that. And in Lord of the Flies, we can see that this won't necessarily make them one-dimensional. I think that's often the fear with this tactic, that you'll end up making characters that are too predictable or stereotypical. But the characters in this book are not flat. In a 12-chapter, less-than-200-page book, all four of these characters, and even many of the side ones, take on real character development and characterization. Ralph is really understandable, trying to keep control and prevent savagery for the sake of rescue, but he also has the flaw of initially dismissing Piggy and bullying him in order to remain popular. He also becomes less effective as time goes on. Jack is arrogant and horrible and inevitably violent, but he does have a point about the food and does provide for the rest of them. Simon is a morally good person, investigative and reliable, but he keeps secrets and talks to rotting pig's heads. Piggy is logical and good, but he's also legitimately a bit annoying. They're all relatable in their own ways and still flawed. So the fact that they're metaphors doesn't detract from their character. They aren't simplistic and they aren't dull. If you're trying to communicate a worldview or issue, pigeonholing your characters into representative behavior can easily and still interestingly depict the point you're making. This isn't a particularly common strategy in modern writing. Metaphors tend to be far less literal or non-existent, but I think it's a tactic that adds layers to your story and provides a lot of food for thought for the readers who desire it. Jack and Ralph's conflict, Piggy's behavior, Simon's death, they all make sense on that surface level reading, but readers who want to can dig deeper and still find something meaningful there. And that's where I think the difference between an entertaining and a good book will come into play. Also, a brief mention of why it's so heartbreaking and yet so good that Simon and Piggy die in this book. Golding is making a point that requires stakes. A bunch of boys going mad would be more funny than revealing if there were no chance of ultimate consequence. He therefore doesn't shy away from killing characters, all of whom, by the way, are children. The oldest in the group, Jack and Ralph and Piggy, I think are 12? 12! The morality of man, Golding is saying, is corrupt to the core, even from childhood. No one is innocent. The guilt of society is, for most people, the only thing preventing them from outright savage evil. Fun point? No. True? I think so. That depends on your worldview, but I always thought the Lord of the Flies theory made more sense than Robinson Crusoe or anything else implying inherent good in humanity. To drive this point home, Golding has to showcase the consequences of savagery. These boys don't even feel much guilt. After Simon's death, they each actively try to forget what they did or blame it on the others or the environment or Simon himself. This is evidence of natural evil in the heart of man. And yet Simon and Piggy existed. They are possible. We should strive to be like them, not Jack or even Ralph. 
Though Simon and Piggy are the sacrifices, they're only the sacrifices when things go wrong. A lack of people like them is indicative of a point of no return, a negative tilt to society. If everyone on the island had been like them, they all would have suffered less and been rescued quicker. Their rescue, as it is, was merely an accidental fluke when Jack lit up the island trying to smoke out Ralph. And maybe that is the cycle. Our own destruction eventually comes around to force the necessity of society again. But if we could all be a little more like Simon and Piggy, maybe we could avoid the worst parts of the cycle in the first place. So when you're writing, treat character deaths the way Golding treats these. He isn't arbitrarily killing people off, though I do think there are stories where that can work, like with a Game of Thrones effect, but he also doesn't avoid killing altogether. Their deaths are vague, actually. When Simon dies, it's described so distantly, exactly as the boys themselves are feeling it, that you're questioning for about a page what even happened, where Simon is, he couldn't truly be gone, could he? And then the end of the chapter confirms it. There's no gore, there's no excessive driving home of the point, there's just... The action and the emotion afterwards. This is a great way to write, implying and indicating so the reader can wonder and imagine before ultimately being given the true, concrete, concluding statement. This is how Piggy's death goes too, and it leaves us feeling like something's gotta give, that we can't possibly be reading this right until it's confirmed in Golding's prose. Depending on your genre, know whether or not character deaths will be realistic or contribute to your theme. There's a reason no one really dies in Pride and Prejudice. There's a reason someone does in The Great Gatsby. And there's a reason that there's death and these specific deaths in The Lord of the Flies. Like Golding, understand what you're trying to say in your writing and use this to inform how many characters should reasonably die and who they should be so to best communicate your theme. Don't shy away from it entirely, but don't get too gung-ho about it either. Simon and Piggy's deaths were so effective because they felt unexpected and yet so inevitable once they were done. That's the effect you want to create, and it can be hard, but the best rule of thumb is to choose them sparingly and to choose them purposefully. What is lost once Simon dies? What is lost once Piggy dies? It shouldn't so fundamentally change the atmosphere of the story that readers feel jolted or tricked but it also needs to carry consequences. These two deaths, as well as the few off-screen that are implied, are effective because they met this middle ground. So my advice is to hint at deaths as they are happening, then provide a concrete statement for readers so they have clarity, and choose those deaths carefully. Be open to them, but not obsessive. Now let's talk about symbolism. People sometimes mock symbolism these days, that readers or teachers or scholars overanalyze the meaning of small details, but there is true symbolism, and Lord of the Flies is chock full of it. Let's start with the conch shell. It's so hard to say. Conch shell. Conch shell. Conch shell. Ralph finds this in the first chapter. It's pretty, it's perfect, and it's practical because it can be used to call meetings by blowing into it. When the other kids see Ralph with this conch, it gives him immediate authority. They vote him to be their leader. They do this almost exclusively because he is the one that originated with the conch. It also becomes an object someone must be holding at a meeting in order to speak. Piggy and many of the others take comfort in the authority of the conch, knowing they can speak and that others cannot abuse them as long as Ralph holds it in his control. The conch becomes this symbol of order and authority, of the power society has over the behavior of its people. It symbolizes the rule of the civil majority. It's not particularly earned, it's kind of like when politicians get voted in because they're attractive, but it is useful and potentially necessary for Ralph to be our leader. 
And as time goes on, that conch gradually loses that authority until ultimately it breaks. And this is the moment Jack convinces all the others to hunt down and kill Ralph. His authority and the very existence of a civil society are gone. The conch, how it is perceived and its destruction, backs up the plot and characters of this story. It's consistently mentioned, consistently around, and that's what makes it a really effective symbol, the kind of thing a reader can point to and understand on a specific level. Symbols are both specific and broad, an image that distills the story down to its essential details that can then be extrapolated outward. The conch is specific to the island, it's specific to this story, and yet it is also saying something about society in general. This is what authority is, tentative and yet powerful. This is what society is, tradition and ritual for the sake of comfort, and it's really effective. Another symbol is the Lord of the Flies himself. When Jack kills a pig, he stakes its head as an effigy and offering to the monster they're beginning to suspect is on the island. When Simon stumbles across this pig head on a stake, he talks to it and it speaks of death. It says he can't escape it, that he stayed too long and now his fate is sealed. Simon dies basically immediately after this. It's not only a symbol, therefore, but also foreshadowing. It speaks to the metaphor of the title and showcases just how far these boys are descending into madness. They're making sacrificial offerings to a monster in order to stay safe. That's when you know it's gone too far. That's regression, not progress. It's also interesting that rescue only arrives once Ralph destroys the effigy. The other boys are worshipping it, but he despises it, just as society despises death. We don't speak of death in polite society. We avoid it and ignore it until it stares us in the face. And Ralph tears it down, making rescue apparently possible. So the symbol is not only plot relevant, we're not going off on a tangent with a self-important symbol, but it's a significant symbol for what the boys are experiencing internally and utilizing a natural element of the setting to do so. Again, good use of a symbol. And there are others. We have Piggy's glasses as the scientific progress of man to better the species, to make fire and grant security, fought over by the savage. The signal fire as a touchstone of the boy's mindset and priorities. It's especially interesting to me how Jack's face paint can be interpreted today. Jack eventually dons face paint, it's like mud, in order to camouflage and hunt the pigs. And the moment... The moment he puts it on, he claims he's no longer bound by his preconceived notions and morality because he's disguised. He could be anyone. Now, Golding wrote this book significantly before the advent of the internet, and yet Jack going feral and feeling free of consequences and limits once his identity is blurred is a total representation of how an internet persona makes people feel, more confident and more justified in bullying and bashing and threatening. Disguising an identity gives people the impetus to act on what their morality or society would ban them from if they had to wear their own face to do it. It dismisses consequences, and that's what savagery is. Golding saw this as a product of the breakdown of society, but it's applicable today in the way we perceive our identities on the internet, too. How many things do you say to people online that you could never stomach saying face-to-face? -face? A lack of identity, a lack of consequences, makes us brave, typically to our detriment. Golding couldn't possibly have foreseen this connection, but what he did when writing this book was see the broad nature of man rather than only the specifics of his time. That's why I love this book. It's applicable today. The internet didn't cause this problem, simply inspired the Lord of the Flies mentality to take on a new form in, quote, civilized society. 
criminals have always donned masks to hide their identities as they subvert societal norms. So Golding, realizing this broad reality, realizing what made crime and savagery easier, was able to incorporate a universal truth into a specific story via a symbol. That's what symbolism can do. It brings a specific story to the broad, universal reality we all live in. So whatever your story, I would recommend creating at least one purposeful symbol, something the reader can think of singularly to represent the whole. You may, if you're a practiced reader and writer, do it accidentally, but creating at least one purposeful symbol can, again, add that extra layer, drive home that theme, and most importantly, expand your story to a higher level, a level that may still be relatable to readers next century. And that type of writing is never going to go out of style. I've talked a lot about themes so far, I know, shocker, but let's talk about something else. Let's talk about word choice. Now, people in the past, writers and regular people, had significantly better vocabularies than we do today. I don't really know why this is, maybe it's another sign of breaking down society, but we don't use nearly as many words as even Golding did in his time. So I found it so refreshing to see such purposeful, descriptive word choice. He uses words like myriad and ebullience and leviathan and caper and epaulette. It feels sort of from another world, even though it's still English. And some of the phrases are so beautiful and vivid. He describes the plane wreck as a scar across the island, and the flowers there as taking possession of the island, and the mornings as a time when hope was not necessary and therefore forgotten. He describes scents and sensations and uses them to feed into the boy's emotions. For a short book, the language is beautiful, and the shorter the book, maybe the more important this is. Just like with poetry versus prose, the shorter the written work, the more important the word choice. It's always important, but maybe more so the shorter the work. It's an experience to read this book. And so all of you, but especially those of you writing shorter books, really choose your vocabulary with care. Don't worry about this on the first draft. It, that's not when it's relevant. Get the story out first. But then when you're editing, choose different words throughout the story. Don't describe things in the predictable way. It needs to be clear but not predictable. And not repetitive unless you're doing that specifically for emphasis. Did Golding do this on purpose or was it just the style of his time? I'm not sure, but I would suggest finding at least 10 or so fun, obscure, or uncommon words that still have clear and known meanings to really amplify your prose. Words that don't show up in conversation, but have an unconscious meaning to them. Expose readers to new words. Don't confuse them, but challenge their intelligence. Readers typically love that. We writers all have our crutch words, suddenly or smirk or heart or brave, but these can get repetitive since we're comfortable with them, and because most other writers are also comfortable with them. They work, but they're not noteworthy. While you want to be clear and communicate first and foremost with readers of today, try to mix it up with some choice words here and there, not excessively or repetitively, but purposefully. It needs to fit your style and your genre and the culture of the book you're writing. Readers shouldn't feel jolted from the story just so you get to show off a cool word like myriad, but don't settle for a less descriptive phrase just because you don't want to look pretentious. It's not pretentious, it's good writing. And if you can inspire a curiosity and vivid imagery and evocative emotion in fewer words, your readers will get a more unique picture they can associate primarily with your story. And yes, this may mean going down the rabbit hole and scouring the internet for synonyms and spending hours editing just one single page of your book, but it will create memorability. 
Strong word choice will work on an unconscious level to help readers more readily love your book and create associations with it. And hey, if you need some help finding cool words to use, that's a segment on every main episode of this podcast. So, there you go. Now, because I have some time, there's one thing kind of tangential to this book that I want to address. Apparently, a lot of English teachers will, in an attempt to illustrate the themes of this book while teaching it, give the kids in their classroom balloons or candy with the explicit rule that they are not to touch anyone else's and then leave the classroom for half an hour or so. And the point is supposed to be that they will descend into anarchy while the adult is gone, stealing from each other and whatnot. And since this doesn't work, the teacher will almost always return to a perfectly peaceful classroom. People say this is evidence that Lord of the Flies is exaggerated or not accurate. And this always bugs me because this is the worst possible way to conduct this experiment. First of all, the kids know each other in this classroom situation. It's going to take them a lot longer to descend into murder when they all spend eight hours a day every day together. The Lord of the Flies boys didn't really know each other, so that's an enormous difference. Two, Being gone for half an hour is nowhere near an equivalent of being stranded on a deserted island. There's no trauma, there's no worry, there's just maybe a general question of, hmm, I wonder when she's going to get back. And three, there will be consequences for kids in a classroom. When your teacher is out of the room, that doesn't mean anything goes now. Kids understand that once the teacher returns, there will be consequences for anything they did. And they also have the utmost expectation that she will return. Therefore, the laws of society are still restraining them. On an island where you're starting to doubt the reality of rescue, this is not so much a problem. So, you can interpret anything how you want, but if the failure of a civilized teacher to create total anarchy in a classroom after 30 minutes is your evidence that this book isn't accurate, I just invite you to look at the variables that aren't being met and every other instance of evil that happens in the world. You don't have to think this is the best representation of humanity, but I do think it says something. I do think it is accurate, at least in its interpretation of our more primal desires and our primal needs. This is more of a reading point as opposed to a writing point. Um, I guess the writing point is that people will always doubt you and disbelieve what you're saying, and that's something you have to cope with, but I just wanted to note that because it frustrates me that that is the evidence that humanity is good, that, like, what, a bunch of teenagers won't turn on each other in 30 minutes when an adult is returning? I I don't think that's an equivalent situation. So, anyway. <laughs> in closing, I do obviously really love this book. It is one of my favorite classics. I think it still holds up today. Whether you think mankind is fundamentally good or fundamentally bad or maybe a little of both, I think this story gives you a lot to think about in a bite-sized, easy-flowing way that stays with you. Is that a product of its length, of its word choice, of the universality of its themes and symbolism, of the effect of those character deaths? Maybe it's all of the above. And you can do the same in your story by just being purposeful with the images and vocabulary you use to communicate a theme that matters. That being said, that's all I've got for now. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next page. <laughs>